Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Hello, good evening. Hi. It's a wonderful turnout and a wonderful, beautiful day. Good evening, welcome to the Parish Art Museum. My name is Corinne Ernie. I'm the Senior Curator of Arts Reach and Special Projects here at the Parish. And it's a distinct pleasure to present the film, The Gardener, tonight. And this is really in celebration of landscape pleasures, a weekend celebrating landscapes out on the East End with panels and garden tours. So before we watch the film, I would like to introduce you also to the speakers of tonight who will talk about the film afterwards. Uh, we will have Alicia Whitaker, she is the recent president of the Horticultural Alliance of the Hamptons, and Taxton Crandall, who is a landscape designer with uh, LaGuardia. So thank you very much for joining us. And Alicia will actually say a few words about the film before, before we get started. And I would like to thank our Friday night sponsors who make these programs possible. Our presenting sponsor, Bank of America, the Weill Cornell Med Medicine Southampton, and the Corcoran Group. So thank you very much and uh, welcome, Alicia. Oh, and before I forget, sorry, sorry, sorry. I want to, my big thank you is to Jackie Lofaro from the Hamptons Dog Fest, our partner um, in crime for this program. Thank you. Great, good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. I'm a midget for this podium, but um, so nice to see so many friends here. Thanks for coming. I think you're gonna love this film. Frank Cabot, is a very controversial figure in the gardening world. Some people call him a hero. Some people call him a savior of many gardens. Others call him um, a plagiarist. Um, someone I was speaking to about the film said, oh, is that the film about the horticultural Disneyland? I hope not, I don't think so. But we'll see what you see after you see the film. Um, among other things, Frank is best known for, for a lasting contribution that really wasn't talked about in the film. He's the founder of the Garden Conservancy, which by now has served, has saved over 100 gardens in North America. And certainly many of us get to enjoy gardens in our area on open days. And that's all thanks, thanks to the Garden Conservancy, which didn't get started until 1989. It's a recent thing. Now, the other thing about Frank is that you'll see his wife in the, in the film, and you have to know that he married well. Um, Anne Perkins Cabot is from the, the Perkins family that donated the land and, and houses of Wave Hill to the city of New York, as well as other preservation important conservancy properties in, in the Hudson Valley. And she's played a huge role behind the scenes in encouraging him and actually coming up with the idea for the Garden Conservancy. And they've been full partners in what's happened at, at Le Quatre Vent, uh, as you'll see. The Conservancy, by the way, was started when they both went to California and visited Ruth Bancroft's garden, which is a cactus and succulent garden, and learned that she was worried about what would happen to it after her death. And it was Anne, who suggested to him, well, why don't you start a conservancy? And a year later, he had funded an office, an executive director, another, another staff person, a horticultural advisory committee, and they got going. So she had a big role to play. 
The other thing that you need to know about Frank and Anne is that um, early in their married life, they lived in New York during the week, but spent weekends in the Hudson Valley at property that her grandmother gave her uh, that became Stonecrop. And they became passionate alpine gardeners. She had run into alpines when she lived with him in, in, uh, in the Boston area. I think he was finishing Harvard and they lived there for a while and she was the gardener. So at some point they were weekending at, stone, at the Stonecrop property and had a hard time finding alpine plants. So they started a nursery, hired someone to do it. And then of course, many of us in the room probably have, have visited the wonder that is Stonecrop. So thanks for that too. Now, I, I was very curious about how did this documentary get made? And it turned out that the filmmaker, Sebastian Chabot, visited on one of their open days in 2007. There are only four days a year that are open to the public with all of the proceeds going to a local nature group. But anyway, Sebastian visited and he thought that, that more people should know about the garden and he had the idea of making a documentary. And he finally contacted Frank after going through various levels of protectors who said, I like the idea. If you wanna do an interview, you'd better come now because I'm dying. He, you know, he literally had idiopathic um, pulmonary fibrosis, where scar tissue wrecks your lungs. And they began filming and talking in 2009. Uh, Frank Cabot died in uh, 2011. And the film crew continued to do 22 days of filming over a four-year period uh, as the crew kept returning to catch the garden in its best moments. You know, the different parts of the garden. Their oldest son, Colin Cabot, has been a contact for Sebastian after Frank died to keep things moving along. So I thought that was very interesting that this is how the film came about. We also have a little bit of a Hamptons connection with Frank Cabot. He did speak to the Horticultural Alliance in the early aughts, probably 2004 or five. It was arranged by Elizabeth Lear, who is one of the originators of this whole Landscape Pleasures program too, not here tonight, but when she talked to him, she said, come and talk to us, but don't bring, don't bring too many books. Our, our members are pecunious. And he didn't believe it. He brought several cartons of books and sold very few and was very frustrated, but, but he did speak to us. He met Jack Leonard Larson at that lecture who subsequently took eight people in a private jet to visit Le, Le Quatre Vents and they became, uh, they developed a friendship. And in 2011, Longhouse gave him the Longhouse Medal for Landscape Design. So that was three or four years before he died and was a special thing. I just wanna close with one quote, and I think you're gonna see evidence of this in the film. Frank said, I see gardening as a sensual activity and a garden should be a sensual experience, not only the scents and colors, but also the sounds. You hear the leaves rustle, for example. I always want to have elements that create central reactions that get to you subliminally. As you walk through this garden, I'd like, I'd like to think that all of your emotions had been tweaked one way or another. So we'll see what you think about the garden. Is it a wonder of the world or is it Disneyland? And hopefully we'll talk about it after the film. Thank you. We've Good evening. Heard.
We'd love to hear your questions. The fact that you stayed through the film makes a statement. <laughs> I'll ask you a quick question, Alicia, while maybe people warm up. You talked on whether the garden was Walt Disney, theater, masterpiece, plagiarism. What's, the, what's your take on it? Well, I love it. I, I could never in my wildest dreams conceive of the different rooms and transitions. It's only someone who's kind of a mad genius with a lot of money who could deliver something <laughs> like this. But I often thought about Jack Leonard Larson as I saw this, you know, who on a much smaller scale created some of the same dynamics. So Absolutely. I would love to go. I want to see those delphiniums. I want to see the primulas. He was a big plant freak and knew a lot about plants and personally did much of the planting there. People would come and find him with his knee pads and you know, dirty gardening gloves. So I'd love to see it in person. And Agreed. Colin, the son, has been very involved in theater administration and musical arts administration. I, I hope he stays involved in overseeing this. And we think that Ann Cabot is still alive. So I'm very high on it. How about you? What did you think as a landscape designer? Sure. I, I definitely agree. I, th I think it's a work of art. It's one man's vision. It's his passion. And I think it's executed in, in kind of a, a focused way that it's a work of art. I, I think it speaks for itself. Y yes. How many acres? It's 20 acres. And there's 300 acres surrounding it. But the gardened, quote unquote, gardened part is 30 acres, excuse me, 20 acres. And Anne is involved in carriage driving, carriage riding. Some of those horses that we saw are <laughs> carriage horses. So there are other trails outside of the garden, per se, you know, into other parts of the property. But, you know, the, the, the team he has manages 20 acres. How large? Don't know. But he mentioned in another book that he makes great use of a, of a nursery that he kind of helped, he kind of provided seed money to start a local nursery. Some, I think some of their manpower um, and woman power as well as the plants come from that source. So many people in the surrounding communities have been employed. And obviously we met, we met his key gardener who's been there for what, 20, well, at the time of the film, it was 27 years. More now, probably. Please. Open four days a year. Yes, it's it's four days a year because it's still it's not a public garden. Stonecrop became a public garden, right. and they essentially stopped living there. But from what we can surmise, the Cabot family still goes up there for summers. And Ann Cabot, who's in her nineties now, is there in the summer. The other thing I found fascinating and just kind of fell into learning is that they also have a lodge in New Zealand. And they together spent part of the year for at least 15 years um, on the North Island of New Zealand, probably our winter, you know, right. their summer. What um, about the alley they planted there? Pardon me? The alley. Oh, a, a gigantic, several miles long alley. And he made a, a remark to the effect that I hope they can see this from outer space. <laughs> so, you know, even later in life, he was still planting and developing elsewhere. I mean, New Zealand, who, you know, <laughs> big surprise. I mean, you know, Cold Spring Harbor, 
Quebec, now New Zealand. But they were very adventurous, you know, going, going on these botanizing excursions to Nepal. Mount, you know. Yep. Pretty amazing. Absolutely. Some more words about plagiarism. Use that word. <laughs> I mean, have you ever done a plagiarism? Well, well. Um, Good artist, borrow, great he, artist. He and uh, Penelope Hobhouse used that word as, as they were. I think the question is um, plagiarism. And, you know, did he in fact plagiarize? And his point of view is that we all plagiarize in our gardens. And in the 60s and 70s, when he and Anne were traveling a lot, they were going to the great gardens of certainly England, France, probably Italy. And when you do that, you kind of absorb these ideas of, of the allays, the focal points, use of sculpture. I mean, you know, all these things that uh, you then see repeated over right. and over. Is that plagiarism or is it learning the vocabulary of landscape design? Now, you should answer that question sure. as a landscape I, designer. I think, too, it, there's a difference between plagiarism, but he's very honest about his plagiarism. He's not sneaking it by the professor. He's very honest on those sources of inspiration, whether it's the gardens he toured in, in his service in Japan or I love the arch um, that he derived from the Royal Mughal Gardens. So I think there's an honesty to that plagiarism and those sources of inspiration. He's not passing it off as his own idea or his no. own design. He's, no, he, he he's says, I saw this and loved it and wanted it. <laughs> that arch, for, that arch, by the way, his wife hated it and called it Frank's erection. <laughs> it was 38 feet tall. <laughs> and at one point it fell down because it had rotted at the base, <laughs> but he rebuilt it with steel, steel going into concrete. And, and by that time, the trees had grown up around it, so it didn't look so stark and, and obvious. What else? Any more words about, you said he was well, well, no, he's not, I mean, given that this was an homage to him, it's not gonna talk about the controversy. But I, I, my impression, reading everything I've read now about him, is that on the whole, he was beloved, probably feared a bit, very powerful, did a lot of great things for many institutions. What was controversial, really, was this issue of, are these his ideas or someone else's ideas that he's implementing? Also controversial is, does the garden as a whole hang together properly? You know, is there a, is there a structure to it? Is there a, right. a coherent... What would you landscape architects say? What, how would you ask that question? I mean, I think the, the idea of it being a complete, you know, composition is controversial, but I think having the narrative behind that composition is what lends kind of a, some credit to that, the okay. arrangement. Um, I think, too, you touched on the controversy of it being open four days a year. I mean, it's obviously a huge amount of resources that are limited to a select few. So there's some controversy there as well. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what do people, what do people decide to do with their money? Right. And, you know, creating this kind of beauty, it's mainly for the family, but it's for other people too, especially as the next generations come. But um, I would love to learn more about the current generation's plan for the garden. Colin seems to be embracing the, the need to oversee it. There are two other daughters in the family. And I tried to learn more about the daughters. One of them lives in Colorado um, and is married to someone who's also a conservationist. So they're very involved in local conservation issues. 
couldn't find much about the other daughter, but you notice that they weren't interviewed and they weren't listed as sources um, in the credits for the film. But Colin obviously got pulled in. So, I mean, I have this naive image of the Cabots, the, the, the younger Cabots, the great-grandchildren now, <laughs> romping in the garden and playing with the, playing with the elements and enjoying it, keeping it all going. Are, are there any gardens on the east end of Long Island that are part of the Conservancy? Well, I don't think any have been preserved by the Conservancy, but we have many gardens that are that participate in the open days, mm. in the open day program. We're, we actually will have a garden featured in one of the Garden Conservancy tours next weekend in Bridgehampton. So our office is leading a tour of that garden, which has been worked on for many years by our office. So. It certainly has an impact on the East End and the garden community. Yeah. The open the open days uh, program was the was the brainchild of Paige Dickey and Pepe Maynard, who who were involved, I think, on the board of the Conservancy when it was just trying to preserve gardens. And you know the the English have had this open gardens day scheme, they call it a scheme, you know, for for decades, and we didn't have that. You know, there there would been there's been the occasional garden tour sponsored by a local garden club, but this now is a network of open days with a wonderful directory with, you know, a, kind of a great way for us to know what's there and potentially be able to see it. All private gardens, all private spaces. Yes. For tea ceremony ever held in the tea house? That's a great question. How could they not be? It's such a beautiful space. I hope and, so. and they had, uh, you know, the, the accoutrement, the, the wonderful pot, all of that. But, you know, this is a family that kept its privacy. And you, you get the sense that they really use it as a family. Um, Colin, in another article, or, an, or actually the introduction to another book, made the comment that one night they were all gathered for dinner. And you had a sense that there were a lot of people there, grandchildren, children, um, various people. And before dinner, Frank came in and said, you have to drop everything you're doing right now and come with me to the perennial border. It's never looked better. It was the, <laughs> it was the end of July. It was, you know, people wanted to eat. But he got them all out to the garden. And Colin said, I'm really glad he did. It was a really special moment. And it really was the peak of that perennial border. So that tells me that the family engages with what's there. How could you? Oh, oh! Here's another little tidbit. He talked about the pigeonier having the love nest. <laughs> Le nid d'amour um, is the French word they used a couple times, and that beautiful little alcove bed. Well, the first person who who got to use it was the theatrical designer, who did the interior of the pigeonier, and he used it for his wedding night. <laughs> Isn't that nice? <laughs> so. And um, Frank went on to say that every garden should have a, a, a need d'amour. <laughs> so the question is, where is yours? <laughs> where is ours? Where is the love nest in the garden? Great thought. Thank you. Great. Well, great audience. Thank you. Great questions. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you, Alicia. It.